From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazon. This week, we spend the hour discussing the current situation in Libya with Ali Ahmida, Professor of Political Science at the University of New England in Maine. Stay with us. It's either me or chaos, had threatened the late dictator Mohammed Gaddafi as his grip on power started to loosen in 2011. Nearly a decade later, Libya is in the throes of civil war, subjected to foreign interventions by any number of outside powers and terrorist groups, and unable to bring rival factions to agree on a way to end the violence and destruction. In the East and the West, two rival governments are vying for power. Foreign weapons are pouring in at alarming levels, and both Russia and Turkey have brought in their own mercenaries to fight proxy wars inside the beleaguered North African country. Ali Ahmida, professor of political science at the University of New England in Maine, spoke with Khalil Bendib and gave his assessment of the current situation in his native country of Libya. Professor Ali Ahmida, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us again. Brother Khalil, uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me again. Uh, it has been wonderful to uh, you know, I'll talk to you and your listeners over the years, and it's my pleasure to continue this conversation. Thank you. So as we speak, Professor Ahmida, the hostilities in Libya unfortunately continue, despite several attempts uh, by foreign powers to try to, to bring a ceasefire between warring factions. Give us a brief uh, summary of what happened in Berlin at the Berlin summit and then Moscow and where these uh, attempts are, are as, as we speak uh, at the moment. Well, it's it's very uh, very uh, interesting because the Libyan crisis continues, and the Berlin Congress or conference. I'm it's a slip of a tongue. It sounds like uh, the uh, the uh, colonial um, conference in Berlin in 1884. <laughs> uh, it's a um, it took a place, and this time, what's interesting about it is it had big big gathering of presidents from Europe, from the United States, from Russia, from Turkey, from uh, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the Congo. So, and also heads of government and heads of states and Secretary Pompeo also was uh, attending this conference last month. The interesting thing about it, it's very, very much recognized or admitted in an indirect way that the Libyan crisis is really the responsibility of the outside forces that has that have been involved in the Libyan civil war. And I think it's important to keep in mind, Khalil, that the Libyan crisis continued for a good reason, because the internal civil war between the leaders in the East and the West of the country and the destruction of the state and the opening of the frontiers in the North and the South for a huge country like Libya, one of the largest countries in the whole continent of Africa, as big as Alaska. And also it brings to reality another factor. The Libyan crisis is not an internal civil war 
like other countries. But also, it is a the product of the uh, regional and international intervention that everybody knows is there, but nobody wants to really admit it has been a factor. The crisis continues as a background to this conference because the lack of compromise internally about what to do about the post-dictatorship regime, 2011. Second is because of the outside you know, intervention in the Libyan crisis. The German leadership in bringing all the major regional and international actors in Berlin is very, very important. Unfortunately, despite this really who is who among major international actors, the the outcome of the conference was not as profound as one expected. And it was, I think, tried to push for a, a ceasefire, asserted the the peaceful solution and the, the territorial integrity of Libya, and made committees, a uh, number of committees, including the military committee of five from General Hafter's and the parliament in the east, and the government of national accord and of Faiz Sarraj and his allies in Tripoli, the capital of the country. And also, in addition, it confirmed Mr. Salama, the Libyan, the Libya UN representative, uh, plan for a national dialogue uh, that will bring various groups to a dialogue that's supposed to take place in Geneva and beyond that. The goal is to um, assert and, and keep the ceasefire and stop the civil war and fighting around the city of Tripoli and also resume the UN agenda to have a Libyan national dialogue. In theory, that sounds all good. In reality, I'm very skeptical because uh, the ceasefire hasn't been observed and the major regional and international actors are still intervening in Libya, especially with the latest big treaty between or protocol between Faisal Sarraj government in Tripoli and president of Turkey, Mr. Rajab Tayyip Erdogan. Yes, we'll come back to that. I want to talk about that. So in the field, unfortunately, on site in Libya, things have not stopped. The ceasefire has not held. Outside powers are still bringing in armament. Yes. Two of the prominent foreign interests in Libya, among others, but two of them, are former colonial powers. One is France and one is Italy. France is the former colonial master of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And Italy, for a while, was the colonial power in Libya. Both of them beset by powerful anti-immigration, xenophobic, Islamophobic movements in their own politics. And somehow Italy and France having so much in common, <laughs> they're still apparently backing different sides in Libya. The French Macron is backing ostensibly the UN-recognized government. In Tripoli, and the Italians are, are backing Haftar, if I'm not mistaken. No, the other way around. It's the, the other way around. way around. I'm sorry. Yes. It's the other way yes. around. Tell us, why is it that these two countries that are so similar, at least from the point of view of the North Africans, uh, why would they be disagreeing in Libya? What different interests might they have? Well, I, I think this is an excellent question. And if you notice that in the coverage of the Libyan crisis, there is a little bit of vagueness and denial, and also the narrative that this is a Libyan internal conflict. 
But the fact is the Turkish leadership intervention in the Libyan conflict was precipitated by the uh, the government that is in Tripoli looking for an ally, but also the weakness and the uh, conflict among European countries, particularly France and Italy, which is really interesting. Here, I think these two countries have different motives, but they also have commonalities. The, the differences among the two countries is Italy said, this is really our courtyard. This is the country that we have a historical tie to since we colonized it. Uh, France felt like they were excluded from Libyan contracts under the old regime, and they wanted to really come to Libya with an eye of the southern part as always part of the sphere of influence for France. So the colonial motives and language is, is and the symbolic way of entitlement, as if Libya is really a piece of property, is really is servicing as the situation before 1969, when Libya was a pro-Western monarchy that was very much dominated by Western interests and intervention. The French particularly, however, are interested in Southern Libya as strategic assets since the period uh, before 1954, when they administered Fazan between 1943 and 1951. The second one is the Sahel region is really very, very important to, to France, especially uh, countries like Niger, where they have uranium deposits that are very important for the French economy and the French armament and dominance in Africa. There is also the cultural, linguistic, old division, colonial division of Africa, where the French leadership always treated that as really their own sphere of influence, especially emphasizing aid, cultural ties, francophony culture and language, and they always feel like, you know, um, this is really theirs to have. As if uh, the fall of the Gaddafi regime opened the gates for old colonial and also strategic division of, of the continent, which is very, very ironic in many ways, because as we had talked about before, Khalil, and your listeners should remember, not everybody who opposed the Gaddafi's regime and began to aid the opposition was for the Libyan choice to select a government and build on what the, the monarchy and the, the Jamahiriya states have done socially and institutionally and in protecting its own borders. But, you know, Libya became a really a country where others want to settle scores with the Gaddafi's regime for their own strategic economic, and also other influences, including the most obvious one that everybody talks about, illegal immigrants to uh, to Europe, to France, and to Italy. And at the same time, the economic interests in gas and oil, where both countries are really are eager to get part of the Libyan bonanza that after the stabilization of the country would be really the richest country to, to have a hand on Especially we know Libya has the biggest or maybe uh, largest reserves of oil and not only oil in Africa, the gas exploration and, and potential for the country will be huge, more than we expected. And Libya could be the other rival uh, gas to Europe to even uh, maybe the Middle Eastern and also the Russian 
sources of gas for the continent. So all in all, Libya economically, uh, socially, and strategically is very important. But now the blunt language and the narrative of using a sphere of influence, it really brings the old colonial language that's uh, really coded in the, in the coverage of the Libyan crisis. So this takes us 100 years back when uh, yes. the colonial powers were openly in rivalry, in direct rivalry over the spoils of the failed Ottoman Empire. We're, we're back yes. to that time where the, the old reflexes are still in play. As we speak, France is neck deep in Operation Berkane, which is yes. a military campaign initiated by former President François Hollande yes. to try to contain, ostensibly at least, it's, it's about containing terrorism in the Sahel, which is the region south of Libya and Algeria, Niger, Mali, Mauritania, Chad. And northern Nigeria as well. And northern Nigeria as well. So currently, France actually last week decided to put in 600 more troops. They keep getting more setbacks militarily and losing more soldiers, and they're doubling down as we speak in the Sahel. This is a region that's been reeling from repeated attacks by Islamist movements there, Al-Qaeda and the Maghreb, ISIS and what have you. And this has been exacerbated by the free flow of weapons coming from Libya. So yes. situ situate for us a little bit the current situation there and how France fits into this chaotic picture. This is a, uh, a region regarded by French policy, regardless of the government, as their own strategic sphere of influence. West Africa and Sahelian Africa, mostly French-speaking, with the exception, of course, of uh, Nigeria, which is an ex-British colony, this is where France has always culturally, but also strategically in terms of supporting the security of these regimes, uh, ensuring the flow of uh, economic goods, and also uh, minerals like uranium I mentioned earlier in Niger. It's really strategically very, very essential for an, a nuclear power like France. So these are very important. The new danger, strategic danger for France, and also for that matter, Italy is the flow of thousands of illegal immigrants who are leaving their these countries and seeking asylum as refugees in both Italy and France and Germany and other countries. So this has really become a very, very real threat to them. And especially when uh, the rise of the jihadists and terrorist organizations, transnational against the current states, and the danger of exporting or letting in some of members of these organizations became a strategic threat to both countries. And the French want to be proactive and be really involved in deterring that threat. And Libya became suddenly the front in front of this struggle or the stage where they feel like they, they can now influence the outcome of the civil war, especially after the collapse of Colonel Gaddafi's uh, Jamahriya uh, regime. So both inside Libya and outside in the neighboring Sahel, Islamist groups and militias are wreaking havoc in different ways. Yes. Uh, with both ISIS and Qaeda claiming their own affiliates and different attacks in the Sahel. Yes. What connections do you see between the outside Islamist groups and the Islamists inside Libya 
and is that relevant to the current conflict inside Libya? The tragedy of the Libyan uprising in February 17, 2011, is the leadership faced the, the regime, but also after the threat of military repression, they relied on NATO forces to help defeat the regime. And that became almost original sin for the Libyan uprising, mm. because this reliance on the NATO bombers and experts and military special forces really stained the Libyan regime. And the second factor, which I shared with you listeners before, the Libyan leaders showed really myopia and lack of, of wisdom, especially the exiled groups who came from the outside, and also the one who came from Afghanistan, the one who came from, got out of the Libyan prisons, the jihadists and Islamists in Iraq, also they came with an idea that they really want to create their own state, and they refused to uh, let the army and the police and the old social institution come back because they feel like this is going to really, this is their opportunity to to have a um, control over the society. Unfortunately, this led not only to alliance between the small Muslim brothers in, in Libya, but also the, the uh, Islamic fighting group, uh, the Islamists and the jihads from Afghanistan, who began to ally directly with the groups in the Sahel. And that factor with the militarization of the Libyan uprising and the different alliances led to even we have not only the Libyan borders in the south are controlled by a transnational organization like Al-Qaeda and uh, the organization of of Maghreb, Islamic Al-Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb, and also the groups like the non-state actors like the Tubu of Northern Chad and smugglers and all kind of groups who began to really operate freely in the large Libyan borders between Libya, Chad, Niger, and Algeria. So the Libyan borders were became open frontiers for all of those groups. They Some of them allied with the Libyan Islamist jihadists and groups, and they even took over some Libyan cities away from the states in the east and the west, like the city of Darna, like neighborhood in in Benghazi before uh, they were kicked out by General Haftar and his troops, and also the city of Sirte that became uh, really the um, place for uh, Daesh in Libya, and they had their own city-state up until their defeat a couple of years ago. So what you have is really the disintegration of the territorial control of the Libyan state, and de facto, many wars and major civil war between the forces of the Libyan army led by General Haftar and the government that was recognized by the UN in 2015 after the Sakhirat meeting in, in Morocco. And that really hasn't been resolved because the fight is not just political, the fight also is a military one. And you have a, now a full-fledged civil war, except that the government of the National Accord is very much now isolated. And because of the horrendous situation of security, of killing and kidnapping and smuggling, the General Haftar became credible despite all of his flaws and was supported and appointed by the parliament in 2015 and now in control of the East and most of the South and the city of Tripoli. You know, he came all the way 
to besiege the city of Tripoli, but he couldn't really take it over because now there is a stalemate. This is a prelude to the the Berlin conference where the outside forces say, gee, we are part of the problem. We have been involved directly or indirectly. We better do something about it. It's a late recognition of a reality that everybody knows is the case, but whether that really was strong enough with a mechanism to ensure this this ceasefire, I'm very skeptical about that. So this official embargo or attempt to bring an embargo against importation of weapons by foreign powers to Libya has been ignored and and it's fueling and exacerbating the conflict in Libya. Can you you tell us basically which countries are sending weapons to which side? Tell us briefly who is allied with who at the moment. Well, the major division, there are many divisions, but the major division is between the two governments. One is in Tripoli, weak, are recognized by the international community, though, and the UN, but relies on armed militias in Tripoli, and especially the powerful city of Mosrata, which emerged after the, the collapse of the Gaddafi's regime as the most equipped, uh, organized, and almost a city-state. So the government of national accord in Tripoli is weak, and its jurisdiction is really limited to the city of Tripoli and around it, Yet at the same time, it's the recognized government internationally through the UN agreement in 2015. This government is supported by Islamists, and among them, or the most important, will be the very rich Gulf country, small emirate of Qatar, and Turkey, which is really the champions under President Erdogan of Muslim brothers and Islamist activists all over the region. So in that sense, Islamists, especially Turkey and Qatar, are the foremost supporters of this regime. Italy supports the same government in Tripoli. On the other side, General Haftar and the parliament is supported primarily by United Arab Emirates, by Egypt because of its security concerns and the fight against Muslim Brotherhoods after the rise of General Sisi, and also by Saudi Arabia to a larger extent, and France also. France, you know, ironically, publicly says this really recognizes the government of national accord, but at the same time, in a de facto way, is really supporting General Haftar and his forces very much until recently. Russia and Turkey became more eminent in the Libyan civil war because Russia thought that they were deceived and really excluded when the Western and NATO government uh, intervened in Libya. They always had a military contracts and connection with the Libyan government under Colonel Gaddafi. Now they came back and they said, this is an opportunity for us to really assert our influence and our ties with Libya. The Egyptian policy makes sense because they are afraid that more attacks will come from Eastern Libya. Uh, the Libyan-Egyptian borders are long. And really, what at stake is not really um, just because of uh, General um, Sisi. Anybody in Cairo will really be worried about jihadists, non-government organization like Daesh or Al-Qaeda or others, or really opponents of the regime, the Muslim brothers who have some of the, their operatives and their fighters and their organizers escaped into Libya. So in other words, the opening of the Libyan civil war the opening of uh, the northern borders allowed various actors, regional Arab 
actors, uh, Europeans and Turkey and Russia to play a bigger role in the conflict. It's really it's misleading and it's a joke to assume that the Libyan conflict was an internal conflict. The other interesting factor, uh, Khalil, is the United States has been very much involved in the fight through drones against Al-Qaeda and against Daesh, yet at the same time, they have been very ambiguous since the Obama administration and really letting their allies, either in the Gulf or in Europe, to play a, a bigger role. And they decided not to be involved directly in the Libyan conflict, except President Trump has called General Hafter earlier and made sure that they both agreed, as reported in the fight against terrorism. At the same time, Secretary of State Pompeo asserted that Libya still recognized the government of national accord, but they meet with General Hafter and the parliament as well. So you, I think the American policy at best is very, very ambiguous. And almost there is no clear policy aside from sending drones and raids to attack what they regarded as terrorist organizations in Libya. So what we're seeing roughly in terms of the regional Arab and Middle Eastern powers is the same basic alignment that we've seen in Syria, where you have on one side those who are more sympathetic to the Muslim Brotherhood, that is Qatar and Turkey, and on the other side you have those who are more interested, actually very allergic to the Muslim Brotherhood, like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. Saudi Arabia, seen from a distance, would seem to be the icon for Islamism. They have fomented all sorts of trouble worldwide with their Salafi uh, brand of Islam. And yet it is completely, it's an enemy of the Muslim Brotherhood. Explain to us what the reason is for both Saudi Arabia and the UAE being so against the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, Saudi Arabia always regarded you know, itself and it has highlighted the fact that they are really, their legitimacy is based because they are, they are the Muslim country and the most publicized name for the king of Saudi Arabia, especially after the Iranian revolution, is the uh, custodians of the holy places. So that always has been the advocacy and their uh, reply to their Republicans with small r, with the nationalist uh, revolutionary regimes and, and movement in the region since the 1950s, is that they are really, they are the Muslim country, they are now the custodians of the holy places in Mecca and Medina, and therefore they are the, the true Muslim country. So in a, in a way, the Muslim brothers, even though they took refuge and they were accepted in Saudi Arabia during the fight with President Jamal Abdel Nasser in the 1950s and 60s, yet at the same time, they posed a challenge for the Saudi regime now because they, kingdom I should say, they dispute the claim that the Saudi Arabian monarchy is really the custodian, the leader of the Muslim community uh, internationally. And I think in that sense, they made an, an effort to really distance themselves from that, especially in the last 10 years. And the United Arab Emirates always had really a tough time adjusting with the, um, with the Muslim brothers. And when there were a few organizations or cells discovered in the United Arab Emirates 
that became another excuse, another rationale to fight them. And both countries, and that's the larger context, Khalil, because Saudi Arabia and the rise of President Erdogan in Turkey with an Islamist that's closer to the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, narrative and values and models, that really further alienated the two countries from what they saw as a threat of the Muslim Brothers. And the final point, Egypt has always been, since President Sadat came to power and revised the policies of Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt, it became an ally. So a good, what they saw as, as a really reliable ally, pragmatist, really willing to have common agreement in exchange for support, financial, and so half of the Assad in Syria, President Sadat and President Mubarak in Egypt were seen as allies in a way. And uh, the Muslim brothers were too ideological, too puritanical in their critique of the uh, monarchical hereditary uh, rule in the Gulf. Yes, when you realize how many millions of foreign workers, most of them from Muslim countries like Pakistan or Bangladesh, end up working and living in Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates and the rest of the Gulf, to give equal rights to all Muslims is not, is not something that works for the monarchy because there would be a real threat to their rule. Yes. Therefore, brotherhood is a direct threat. It is, to, it to is, because the, the Muslim Brotherhood is a modernist, socio-religious movement. It has a degree of egalitarianism that's not necessarily monarchical. And it's kind of, even despite their, their conservative interpretation of some aspect of the Sharia, that whole idea of a modernist activist Islam based on egalitarian, a broader prospect is in itself is a threat. But also we have to keep in mind that both the Saudi, or not only the Saudi monarchy, but also the United Arab Emirates and the Gulf Emirates, they found in the Arab, the so-called Arab Spring uprising that turned to be, of course, dominated by the counter-revolution as an opportunity by arguing probably that the best defense is offense. So they really wanted to settle scores with the Syrian regime, with the Libyan regime, with the threat in Yemen, and also the uprising for democratic rights in Bahrain. In that sense, we have to understand really not what's being said, but also what's really the strategic motive here. This is an opportunity for many of them to settle scores and make sure that these regimes are defeated in these countries with a Republican, nationalist, maybe authoritarian tendency, but nevertheless are a threat to the very existence of these regimes. And for a long time, they have been in the defensive. So the uprising was taken advantage of as a way to really make sure that they could impose certain faction or certain groups that would be going along with their own design, their own security, their own way of thinking. I think the irony here, the listener should understand, there is a very, very ironic thing. Here, very, very much hereditary governments and monarchies advocating for democracy, but they themselves, they don't have it. So the idea, uh, you could tell that this is more of state interest to make sure that they will ensure their longevity and stability and existence are not going to be threatened in the in the long term. And they really, the idea of democratic representation, rule of law, empowering people who are excluded, and really challenging the authoritarian dictatorship in, the, in the, these republics is used as a, um, a strategy for their survival 
and stability. That's Professor Ali Ahmida speaking with Khalil Bendib about the political turmoil in Libya. We'll hear more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. So we've spoken about the motivations of the Gulf countries, Egypt, Italy, and France. As for Russia, which complained bitterly when Western powers intervened in Libya to unseat Gaddafi in 2011, they seem to have been playing a a spoiler's role ever since the Ukraine crisis started in particular. Do you see Russia using Libya as a pawn in its struggle against the West and its sanctions against it? because of, of its intervention in the Ukraine? Well, this is one, one factor, definitely, Khalil. The, the sanctions, the question of the Ukraine, and also, quite honestly, the post-Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, really made all of these factors are very, very visible now. And the certainties of the Cold War is over. Besides, the Russian leadership tried to deal strategically with a very, very important question, which is Russia has always had influence in Syria, in Iraq, and in Libya. Previously also in Egypt and Algeria as well. They are convinced, especially President Putin and his advisors, that Libya was really an ally of Russia, and they had long, long diplomatic relationships, military contracts, and very much investment in the Libyan state. And they felt like they were deceived, you know, misled and took took advantage of during the Security Council negotiations and resolution in 2011. And for now, they want to come back. And they found in the parliament and General Haftar an opportunity to reassert their influence and they also relieve themselves from the sanctions in the fight in, in, Ukraine, in the Ukraine and the Soviet Union. But above all, there is another factor, which is also uh, beside the military and strategic factors. Russia is a major exporters of, of gas. The fight in the Mediterranean is about who should control the new discovered reserves of gas in the eastern Mediterranean region. And Libya, as I stated at the beginning of our interview, had tremendous amount of gas as well besides oil. By coming to the Libyan arena and allying with General Haftar, the only general who, in fact, that's willing to deal with them, allowed them to come back to a country where they feel like they were excluded and kicked out after 2011. Turkey also seems to have some views on that gas uh, situation in Libya. Tell us more about that. 
Yes, yes. This is also very much related. I think the interesting thing, both Italy and France, Russia, uh, all had good relationship with the Gaddafi's government. Turkey had huge contracts, billions and billions of signed contracts for the reconstruction that was initiated in the year 2008, 2010, with many countries to rebuild the infrastructure of the country. Turkey had a lion's share of that, and really, they were surprised by the Arab Spring to start with, including what happened in Libya. For them, they felt like they were left out. Now, the uprising that took place in Libya allowed Turkey to come back via alliance with the city of Masrata, and later on, the government of National Accord became dominated by Islamists and Muslim Brothers and other groups who uh, many of them are living in Turkey, were giving support, asylum, TV stations, financial support, diplomatic support, ability to uh, operate easily. And when President Erdogan had really got entangled with the the Syrian question, the Syrian civil war and the Iraqi civil war and the, the jockeying with Russia and President Putin and the Kurdish question, he felt that's a really important factor. And add to that another important concern for the Turkish leadership. Israel, Cyprus, and Greece made an agreement based on the new discovered gas reserves in the eastern Mediterranean region. Tremendous amount of discoveries. And these three countries made alliance and agreement to export gas pipeline that goes to, to Greece and to Italy after that. They excluded, to a larger point, the Turkish leadership and the Turkish state. President Erdogan is really, really upset about that. And he found in in a very desperate government in Tripoli, very weak, very much besieged, Mr. Saraj, an opportunity to make alliance, to get back at his rivals that he feels like excluded Turkey and his leadership from the new struggle over who should control the Mediterranean gas. So we've seen the foreign powers in Libya and their motivations. The only ones we haven't seen are the ones perhaps the most directly concerned, which is the direct neighbors other than Egypt, which we've talked about. We haven't talked about Tunisia yet or Algeria. Tunisia traditionally has been Libya's closest neighbor, and it cannot help but be affected by what goes on in Libya. It's a direct national interest for them. And yet it has been largely ignored by the form of foreign powers. Why is that? And can a solution in Libya bypass Tunisian interests? Well, Tunisia and Libya are very much linked demographically in terms of economic relations, in terms of intermarriage, and and people are, are really related. Many families are interconnected. Libya has always been the place that allows the Tunisian economy and Tunisian people, especially in the South, is a place where over 100, 200,000, you know, um, workers and professionals uh, found employment in Libya. It's really uh, these, this really um, uh, group of Tunisian also supported maybe thousands and thousands of families in Tunisia. It's really worked well. People, uh, economies and people uh, interaction um, to, you know, um, work to complement um, each other. And Libyans found in Tunisia a place for tourism, for medical uh, tourism, for treatment, also a place to, to really uh, go back and forth. It was really a societal 
way of uh, complementing each other. The problem is that the Tunisian you know, state is dealing with the aftermath of the uprising you know, and, and, and the revolution that uh, hasn't really resolved the question, the social and economic question that is still besieged and uh, what to do with the various uh, uh, you know, groups that made the coalition, which toppled uh, Mr. Bin Ali, General Bin Ali from power. So in that sense, Tunisia has a lot of a problem internally. But at the end of the day, uh, Tunisians should be um, involved because their interest is in Libya. And Libyans should also uh, recognize that Tunisia doesn't have a, a colonial or um, a greedy interest in taking advantage of the Libyan people. Unfortunately, so far, there hasn't been a, a clear policy in Tunisia toward the Libyan crisis. And the new president is still trying to assert himself, a form of government, and also uh, be able to have a clear and also um, practical way of um, helping the Libyan process and the Libyan people uh, rebuild their own state. Algeria is a different challenge. Algeria had its own burden, the bloody civil war in the 90s, the, ail, uh, the ailing president who lasted for Bouteflika, who really was just a uh, facade for elite and, and generals who controlled the state. And only now, thanks to the Harak movement by uh, young men and women who are trying to really assert the people's choices and, and accountability in, in the new system, that might lead to something. But unfortunately, the Algerian government has paid a lip service to the Libyan government and often just reacting to what they saw as the Egyptian rival, which is very silly in many ways. The other thing is also they took a, a statement that General Haftar made about the borders and they began to bash him. What I think the, the, I, I see as, as a positive step now with the election of the new president, Mr. Taboon, is the old Algerian foreign policy before the civil war, where Algerian government and has played a very positive pan-Africanist, pan-Maghribians role that went beyond the idea of reacting to the neighbors and really assert these really positive policies in the 1960s and 1970s and even to the 80s. In that uh, 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 for that matter. And I hope that will be the goal and maybe the new president and his government can reassert, revive that policy that would be good not only for Libya, but good for Algeria and the region as a whole. As you said, Algeria went into a hiatus during and after its terrible civil war in the 90s. And it's only recently after the end of Bouteflika's rule that it seems to have decided to resume its role, its traditional role of diplomat, regional diplomat, trying to help assert some kind of equilibrium in the entire region. And it has decided to host a summit of all six of Libya's direct neighbors. Their foreign ministers are coming to Algiers, Mali, Niger, Chad, Tunisia, Egypt, and Sudan. How do you see this effort? Do you see any promise there? I'm encouraged because this is the right thing to do. And keep in mind that, as I said, Algeria has played a very positive role in its diplomatic history after its independence. And there's another factor, Khalil, that probably your listeners have to keep in mind. Algerian struggle for independence 
a Libyan struggle against Italian brutal settler colonialism. Both societies faced settler colonialism that one of the most... And genocide. And genocide. And genocide in, in many ways. And I think the Libyan... The Algerian people sympathize with, with the Libyans. And for a long time, one of the most popular issues for Libyan people, even for me as growing up in southern Libya, the Algerian uh, struggle for independence was the most popular and shaped a whole generation, including my generation and the generation before me, to the point I still memorize the Algerian national anthem even today. <laughs> because of that societal influence on us. Yeah. So I, uh, the reason I'm sharing this story with you, I think there are a lot of intimacy and historical ties that connects the Algerian and the Libyan people who understood what they both went through more than even our uh, neighbors in Egypt, Tunisia, and Morocco for that matter. Who haven't had the same experience no, of no, settler was, colonialism. Was, and, yes, and, yes. And uh, because uh, people always, they forget that Libya and Algeria were really the places where uh, they went to settler colonial, brutal colonization and the killing of half of Libyan population. And in Algeria, over one million one. people um, also were killed in that war for independence. And these are not just the cases, terrible cases in North Africa. These are brutal cases in the whole African continent and maybe the history of struggle against settler colonialism period. That kind of experience and the solidarity that these two societies express toward each other is very, very important. I remember, Khalil, when I, as a Boy Scouts, we traveled to Algeria when I was in high school. And I cannot forget when we, we told the local communities that we are from Libya, the reception and the reaction that was very overwhelming that time. So the, the reason this is really important, I'm optimistic that the new leadership probably could further enhance these ties and play a constructive role that's really important. And also, one has to keep in mind a very, very practical factor, Khalil. Stability in Libya is not only important for the Libyan people who are really excluded and voted in three elections very, very positively, men and women, old and, and, and young, but also it's important for the neighbors the stability of Libya it should be the foremost issue because Libya is huge. And if Libya is fragmented and exploited by opportunistic leaders, jihadist groups, and foreign intervention, then the whole region will suffer. And it already has. It, yes. has, it has suffered many attacks, whether it's Tunisia or Libya or mm-hmm. places in the Sahel. Yes. really suffered from that chaotic Yes, situation. but also there is one, let me add maybe a positive note here. And I think that's important for our, your listeners to keep in mind. There's a puzzle I keep pausing to people whenever I was invited to a UN sessions or to international conferences on the Libyan crisis. And sometimes when I walk, I think about it all the time. Here is a country that has been going through a cycle of violence and conflict with 20 million pieces of arms and guns and destroyed state institutions, destroyed the police force, the army, the security apparatus, the borders, and also being bombarded by all kinds of things, illegal immigrants, invasions, very transnational groups, also agendas that outside the country, mercenary forces. 
Yet at the same time, what really um, find very, very puzzling and quite honestly, very interesting. How could communities, towns, cities, villages function relying on their own without all of these normal security law and order institution around them, which really makes me optimistic a little bit because the Libyan people are telling us there is something that connects them. There is resilience and there is a spirit to survive and resist all of this violence, all of this intervention, all of these agendas. And maybe this is something that could be built upon as the country will move forward. But to be honest with you, I'm not very optimistic about the leaders who failed miserably in leading the transitional period and became really interested in enriching themselves or fighting their enemies or really characters assassinate their rivals. I think I'm very optimistic about the Libyan society itself, but yet how to really empower people so they exercise their voices, they exercise and express their wishes and be themselves. That's really the challenge in the long term. Is it going to happen right away or maybe next year or the year after? I hope so. But the records of of the uh, civil war and the outside intervention is not encouraging. But the spirit and the resilience of the Libyan people is something to admire and respect and discover. Speaking of resilience and survival, one often wonders about how the economy, how economic survival functions in in Libya now that the oil is sometimes disrupted, the flow of the oil. How does that work? It seems that a lot of it is under Hefter's control. Sometimes he's interested in selling it for his own account. Tell us a little bit how that continues to function, more or less. Well, this is a very good question, and I think it needs to be explained. The Libyan state is a rentier state. It relies on selling oil and renting oil and getting revenues. So most Libyans are salaried by the state. Maybe not much, but you have a huge salaried number of the Libyan people, uh, probably a million and seven hundred. One of the biggest one, especially we have only six million or six million and a half people in Libya. The management of the economy is really in the hands of two major institutions, in my opinion. One is the oil national company, the Libyan oil national company, and the central bank. They both are in Tripoli. The oil fields have been part of the civil war by groups or militias, either in the crescent, the oil crescent region in the eastern region, and also in Fazan, because now the largest oil field is the Sharara, and it's also became the target of various militias and armed groups, or people who want to impose certain blockade to get money for the guards of these oil fields. General Haftar did something very interesting last year when he took over the oil feeds from, instead of controlling them, he turned them to the Libyan oil company in Tripoli. But the current siege of Tripoli led to some supporters of the parliament and General Haftar to take over and blockade those oil fields and ports of exporting it. The interesting factor that's also the head of the oil, Libyan National Oil Company, and the head of the central bank, they both are in Tripoli. I think they both are from Musrata originally. And people tell me that they, they are competent, but also have an Islamist sympathies. 
Now there is a war, a tug of war between the government in Tripoli and the uh, parliament and General Haftar, who are trying to use the oil field as a, a bargain chip to pressure each other. In civil wars, Brother Khalil, nobody's innocent, in my opinion. In that sense, use of mercenaries, uh, brutality and violence is really used by both sides. The only thing when I ask people, friends, family members in the East and, and the West and, and the South, they are divided, but they view, uh, interestingly, they want to stop the war, definitely, but they view General Haftar and the army as a lesser evil. And that's why uh, you see he was accepted and the parliament authority in eastern and southern Libya. But that's not the whole story. The fact that the war on Tripoli led to the killing of 2,000 people, the displacement of 150,000 people also in Tripoli, is really also a very, very hard to just swallow because of the fight against the militias. So I think in that sense, everything being used and mobilized by each section or each faction to win this war. And this war is not winnable because the key is issues need to be resolved, but also a compromise should be achieved. And unfortunately, so far, nobody is listening to that message I have been saying since 2012. Unless there is a compromise, I'm afraid that Libya is too complex and too big, and nobody could rule it as the old days of the strong man like Gaddafi. That would be very, very, very wishful thinking. Unfortunately, unless that being realized or the international community and the Libyan people can exercise that, then I don't see really a way out. Unfortunately, the biggest lie is the international community and regional forces are part of the problem and they haven't been admitted their responsibility for the mess in Libya. The conference in Berlin was promising to a point, but at the same time, it became just another rituals and another conference in line of so many conferences in Paris, in Palermo, in Abu Dhabi, in many, many places, to the point that became really maybe just managing the crisis and not resolving it. Finally, you just mentioned the 150,000 Libyans who have been displaced since the beginning yes. of the hostilities. Where are these people going to? How, how do they survive? Well, this is really where I, I'm encouraged and I pay attention to what I said to you earlier, the resilience and the and non-material ties that allows people to support each other. For example, when people were kicked out of Benghazi, they went to Tripoli. Uh, when the town of Tajura was punished by the powerful militias of Musrata, they went to Benghazi, they went to Sabha, they went to Jufra, to the town where I was born and other places. When people are pushed out by the war in, in the south, especially the Tabu militias in Murzuk and other places, they went to uh, other towns in, in Sabha and also in Tripoli and Benghazi and Tobruk. I have my own family members and friends who tell me they go back to, they escaped to Tripoli because the war in, in, in the south was became really so violent against them. And now they tell me that they want to go back to to central Libya and southern Libya. So people are really are going back and forth in, in one place to another in the country, and they're trying to really be safe, have a safe haven for them and their children. The interesting thing, Khalil, is it looks like people are supporting each other, which is very heartening, and opening their homes to each other. 
and having empathy with each other and uplifting each other and giving support and money and food to each other. So this is really a very, very good story that escaped a lot of the commentary on Libya, which is very informed of its history and its society and its challenges. But at the same time, I wonder sometimes how long people could bear this terrible situation and violence and insecurity and and economic hardship in a country that's supposed to be one of the richest in Africa. Ali Ahmida is a professor of political science at the University of New England in Maine. He is the author of several books, including his most recent, The Libya We Do Not Know. His scholarship is cross-cultural and focuses on power, agency, and anti-colonial resistance in North Africa, especially in modern Libya. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabolsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. <music>